Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, I speak with Rob Orchard from Delayed Gratification, always a Stack favorite, plus photographer David Vlashauer and writer Debbie Papin on their new book, Remote Experiences. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in style with Rob Orchard from Quarterly Delayed Gratification. Many of our listeners might know the wonderful title already. It's over a decade now since its launch. Rob tells us about the first decade and also about a book they published called An Answer for Everything, plus a lovely magazine review at the end. Rob Orchard, welcome back to the stack. I mean, you are a regular. It's been a while, but you, you, you're back. You're back. And that's it's the so good nice news. to be back. So this is my first post-pandemic visit to the stack. How nice. It's, it's been years and years. It's yeah, nice to be face to face. It's delightful. And, and you know, one thing I was realizing, delayed gratification is over 10 years now. Yeah, we're I mean, you're getting years. old. We're 12 years old, this, wow. this coming issue. Yes. Yeah. We launched back in January 2011. So, yes, this next one that comes out in December is number 48. And that shows the whole idea of the magazine, this low journalism magazine. It's something that so many kind of brands picked up in the last five years, in the, in the last years, I have to say. But you had this vision, which is amazing, because that's clearly what people wanted, in a way, from a magazine or a news source. Potentially so, yes, potentially so. You're absolutely right. So we were definitely early to it, January 2011. Um, there have been people, notably, who picked it up in recent years and who have raised gigantic amounts of money using the same sort of concept, which is good. I think the kind of the more people engaged in this area, the better. I suppose what I always thought about it was that the world was only ever going to get faster and news production was only ever going to get speedier and more knee-jerk. And so there would be an increasing space for publications like this opened up precisely because everything else was getting more and more and more frantic. So there was this premium to something that slowed down and took its time, look back on the big events after the dust had settled. Give me an update, of course, because clearly it's a success story. It's still after 12 years. Are you still kind of very much based on subscriptions or newsstand sales? How do you see the market? Of course, we've been through a pandemic, right? Yes, yes. I mean, clearly as well. Uh, give us an update on the business side of delayed gratification. Yeah, for sure. So subscriptions are our bread and butter. It's always been about that and doubly so after the pandemic. So actually back in March 2020, when all the kind of the walls were coming down, we thought, oh God, right, so... Well, we probably won't be able to sell any copies at the newsstand for two or three weeks while this is blowing over. This COVID-19 is blowing over. And then that turned into a much bigger problem. And actually, interesting things came out of that. So you have our, our new book there, which I'd love to tell you about in a Definitely. little bit and answer for everything. And actually, that came out of the fact that we were sitting there thinking, God, we can have this massive gap in our income because people aren't going to be able to buy from the newsstand. We better do something that we can control. So we thought, right, you know, we've been we've been talking about making a book for, for years and years and years. Let's make a beautiful book of infographics. So there was that. And then there was also stuff like we had always had what I would describe as a very feeble digital offering. And suddenly we had people that were paying for magazines and we weren't sure when they were going to get them. So we developed um, a better, I still think it's B minus. I think like, you know, it is not as good as it should be the digital offering, but we're working to make it a lot better. And I'm hoping to have some news on that quite soon. 
So, yeah, so subscriptions has become ever more important to us. As you know, the magazine is advertising free, so we just kind of rely on, on the support of our readers. And it's a complicated situation because, of course, now with prices zooming up, physically getting printed copies of the things in people's hands is more and more expensive. And, you know, with Brexit also, it's, it's kind of harder. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated getting stuff to Europe and so on. But no, we're totally committed to subscriptions. And then, of course, there's the stuff around the side. There's the books. There's the classes. And um, we're doing some new events, which I'm quite excited about. But, yeah, no, it's all about the subscribers. I'm just guessing here, but I have a feeling because, you know, I am a reader of delayed gratification. I think there's a sense of loyalty as well because the magazine is, it feels to me, quite solid as well, you know. So... I'm sure you have that as well. It's, it's people that even though it might become a bit more expensive, they're not going to leave you. I have that feeling. I is hope it? so. That <laughs> I love that analysis. Yes, bless you. I hope Business expertise here. It's pure optimism. I love it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Well, I mean, you know, I hope, I'm certain that there's a good number of people who will stick with us. I know that there's people who do really kind of like the magazine and like the role that it fulfills in their life. And we get some really delightfully specific feedback. And you kind of, you always know you know, people who really, really like the magazine because they're criticising a very specific thing about it. I, I actually quite dig it, you know, unless they're really angry with us for something, which does sometimes happen. I quite like somebody who's just saying, well, do you know what? I, you've done this redesign and I don't think this quite works. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that's good. So when we do, we have lots of people who turn up for our events and classes regularly and so on. And I just want to mention a story from the previous issue, issue 46. I just think is the way you do those stories beautifully, the curse of the blue diamond. I mean, it's incredible kind of illustration as well. It's really, it's such a beautiful story. I'm sure you've done this in previous issues, but this really caught my eye in a way as well. well so this is, we have this absolutely sensational illustrator that we work with, Carol Adlam. And I met her a few years ago when she won the World Illustration Awards. And I talked to her then, I said, like, I would love you to do something for the magazine. And we were talking about what the perfect story would be to illustrate in the magazine. As, as you know, we like to look back on stories that other people have either missed or what we call mistold. So this would fall into the category of something that other people had missed. It's kind of a couple of tiny little news stories about it. But basically, a I rapprochement... I found it first here, by the way. Right, good, OK. Yeah. So a rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Thailand after a massive sort of 30-year diplomatic rift caused by a Thai employee in a royal palace in Saudi Arabia stealing some jewellery. And so we talked to Carol about this, and she's so versatile, such a skilled person, that she decided to give the designer sort of almost a Tintin-like quality, because it is, it's this big, epic, strange, confusing, you know, long saga of this thing that's playing out between these two nations. But she did a beautiful one a few years ago about those boys, that football team that was lost in the cave in Thailand, and you remember they got them all out. But it works particularly well, I think, that graphic journalism, when you've got stuff that cannot be represented through photography. Mm-hmm. So obviously nobody had any photos, proper photography from inside the caves. I think there might have been a, a little kind of shot in the glare of the, of the light for when they first kind of got through to them. But actually imagining what it was like for these people, these divers who were going to rescue them, going through these tiny, tiny... I mean, it makes me feel sick thinking yes, about these same. tiny spaces, you know, and all of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. So actually it's amazing that that kind of illuminated from that point of view. But it has to be a very specific sort of story. So I think we've only done about five of them so far, mm. and they've all been epic ones. We also did one about the storming of the Capitol on the 6th of January, because, again, something where a lot of the action took place out of the sight of press cameras. But there was so much, I was, I was going to say beautiful detail, I mean, horrifying detail that, that could be conveyed as part of that story. 
Let's move on as well to the book, actually. Yes, which, lovely. Which is great. Again, it's a sign of expansion, an answer for everything, 200 infographics to explain the world. I mean, what a beautiful project as well. I mean, and as I said, I am a sucker for a good infographic. Yeah. So this is amazing. <laughs> so tell me, is this the first book? Or it's not? This is our first book. Mm. Yeah, this is our first book. We sold it to Bloomsbury during the pandemic, and then we worked away on it. And we did that thing that everybody who has ever worked to a deadline ever does, which is when we had a good old run-up, it, it was it was all ideas. We would go for socially distanced walks along the beach and we would just talk about all the amazing things we could do. And then we're starting to get, oh my goodness, the deadline's getting a bit closer. And then we were really, and then we were suddenly in the horror of that first deadline. Then the first deadline passed and we had to go back to Bloomsbury and apologise. And then the second deadline passed. And the thing was, we hadn't realised, we basically thought, you know, we've done 12 years worth of infographics. We can compile them into a book and, and it'll be relatively straightforward. But what we hadn't reckoned with was how committed our art director was to making something that was absolutely brilliant and he wouldn't let anything go that hadn't been reimagined and reworked and redesigned. And the book was so much the better for it. And of course, that meant a huge amount of extra research and so on as well. And then there's loads of new original pieces as well. Interestingly, the th- <laughs> so one of the things that took the longest time for me personally, because I, I don't design, but I, I was coming up with all the data, was the index. So I think like my immortality, such as it is, is basically in this index of this book, which was so epic. And I it's remember epic. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Actually, it's also it's full of jokes. And I did it. I had said to the other two, right, I'm going to sit down this morning and do the index. It'll probably take me about four or five hours. And they said, oh, I think it'll probably take a bit longer than that. I said, well, four or five hours, but I'll start. And maybe five or six days later, having worked sort of 12-hour days compiling this thing, I had finished. And it was out of control gigantic. But also there was kind of a beauty in it because it meant that you could do all sorts of running gags in there. And there's all sorts of incredibly esoteric stuff that you can find in there. And then we did this. Oh, have you spotted no, something? I spotted something. Nice. Referenced to in a romantic song. That's <laughs> yes. amazing. It's like, oh, that's, gosh. That's yeah. probably day four. That's probably day four on like my fourth coffee. and be like, we need a section on knees. And there are references in romantic songs. So, yes. Yeah, so it's, it's beautiful. I mean, one of the interesting things about the, the book, actually, is that we made it for adults. And it's gone down well among adults. It sold out its first run in in the first seven weeks. But actually, a really big constituency has been kids. So particularly, I would say, sort of 10 plus and teenagers. And one of the nicest things that happened afterwards was people sending us photos of their kid just absolutely kind of enwrapped, like tied up in this book. And people saying, you know, stuff like, I can't get my kid to go to school because, you know, they're so... so, And because I guess it's it's lots of trivia, it's lots of facts communicated in quite a digestible way. It's quite nice. But I think infographics, they are some form of art, in my opinion, because, you know what, I hate when I read the daily papers or even some uh, weekly magazines. I, I love a good graph, but sometimes yeah. they're quite confusing, I have to say. Oh, and, yes. And honestly, I have to stop and sit like... Okay, what's the connection? And I'm and I'm quite anal about those things, you know. Oh so, yes. But yours, it's not. It's actually very clear. It's very beautifully done. I think people well, should get some inspiration. Well, there, so this you know? is our art director. He's he's a omni talented guy and a trained architect as well. So he kind of has that way of thinking about it. I think the thing that I love about this book um, and and sort of doing the infographics in it is that you get this incredible opportunity to be both completely silly and then also deadly serious. So we did one, you know, where the starting point was, well, can we answer through data the question of what is the best thing since sliced bread? 
thought, right, well, yes, we, you probably could. So let's get loads of lists of the best inventions of all time. So scholars have made this and kind of architectural magazines and engineering magazines. Let's pull them all together, get a big set of these lists, and then let's do a meta list. And then when was sliced bread invented? Well, I think the first sliced, like the first automated sliced loaf came off the production line in July 1928. So it was actually, I think it was 6th July 1928. So use that as your cutoff point. And if you look at it and then you collate all the data and so on, you know what the two best things are since sliced bread? <laughs> they are penicillin, which was invented about sort of like 10 minutes after the sliced Helped bread. many lives. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the internet. So the two best things since sliced bread. So you've got silly stuff like that. And then we have a whole chapter that's just called How Do We Save the Planet? And it's looking at what would happen if you took incredibly radical steps on climate change. So if, for example, everybody in the UK went vegan overnight. And that was a lovely challenge because actually there's academic data where they've looked at the embedded greenhouse gas emissions in CO2 equivalent of a heavy meat-eating diet, medium, low meat-eating diet, pescatarian, vegan, and vegetarian. Then you need to get data on the number, the percentage of people in the UK that are all of those different diets. And then you do the calculation to work out what would happen in terms of reduction in CO2 equivalent gas if everybody went vegan overnight. And it'd be amazing. We would save 64 million tonnes of gas overnight, which would be uh, the equivalent of a tonne per person per year. It'd be absolutely extraordinary and for the rest of time. But, you know, on the flip side, you'd also destroy the dairy and agriculture industries almost overnight, you know, all the, the bits that deal with meat. So, And sorry, I stopped here on the page. Who is the greatest football player of all time? And I think you've done your research very well because it's Pelé. <laughs> sorry, I'm just being a little bit nationalistic here. Of but, course. But, but it's beautiful. But of course, Rob, we're talking a lot about delayed gratification, but you also brought some titles. Some of the things you've been reading, I'm, I always like to know more. Maybe you can inspire me so as well. So I've had a series of new magazines introduced to me recently that I've been really, really excited about. So actually, you were just talking about graphic journalism. And here is a French magazine, La Revue Dessinée, which is entirely composed of graphic journalism. And it reminds me a bit of delayed gratification insofar as it's quarterly and it looks back on big stories and primarily from France and it renders them in graphic journalism style. I mean, the amount of money and time and effort I know that goes into doing an 11-page graphic journalism feature. And they, here they've got, I mean, they're just they're showing off at some level. It's just beautiful. It just goes on and on forever. And they've done this interesting thing where They've effectively reversed the ratio. So generally, because it's quite expensive, you would have a very small amount of graphic journalism in your magazine. Well, actually here, they will have a 40-page piece of graphic journalism followed by two or three pages of just regular journalism with photography to explain a bit more about the story. And they really get stuck in. So the, the first story in there is amazing. It's about this move to send Frontex to patrol the coastline of Senegal to try to stop yeah. so many Senegalese from migrating to Europe. I mean, it sort of digs into the story a bit deeper and talks about a large part of the reason that so many people are coming from Senegal is because of the overfishing of Senegalese fishing stocks by European fishing companies. So, you know, amazing stories like that. There's an incredibly important and harrowing story about rape uh, during the Algerian war and then some lighthearted stuff as well. It's a first-class read. It's a thing of beauty. It and, is a and, thing and, of beauty. And, I did, and they're on issue 37? Yes. So wow. these, these guys are very I mean, serious. I'm even writing down the name. Actually, oh, you should the, do. Absolutely. Yes, yes. And then they do special one-off books as well. Mm. 
So they do one-off books um, uh, on on kind of particular topics and really, really go to town on them. The second title I can spot it here. We yes. actually featured that on the stack a while ago, but it's a great travel title. Stranger's Guide. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Stranger's Guide. So I just have a... A lot of respect for these people because obviously there's loads and loads and loads of people making travel magazines and there's lots of people making travel magazines which are kind of all design and no substance or travel magazines where you sort of you start to read and you realize that the person has been parachuted in there for two days and I don't know how they do it but they have just found the very best writers I mean, the writing is exquisite and so this one that I brought in is for New Orleans but they do a different destination each time. And the depth of the coverage and the quirkiness of the coverage as well, they use infographics, but in a much more sort of much less sort of showy offy razzmatazzy way than we do. But they're nonetheless incredibly powerful and they're full of very good pub ammo. So loads and loads and loads of stories. I found myself stopping on a story in there about it must be I feel like it must be a relatively small group of people, but a small group of people who are vampires in New Orleans and kind of get together to drink each other's <laughs> blood. I was like, well, I mean, this is this is astonishing. So, you know, and so many different angles. There's a whole story in there about this hotel, the Hard Rock Hotel, that collapsed in New Orleans before it had been opened. And they've done this investigation into how it happened and this beautiful writing about, you know, what it means for the city and these kind of underlying tensions among the community in the city and this kind of culture of a murder and so on. Oh, I, I think this is, uh, this is terrific stuff, this. And the next one, I'm very curious because there's also a video component which yes. you might have to explain to us. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so the Wild Alchemy Journal. So the Wild Alchemy Journal is by this collective, this arts collective, and they have created this unbelievably beautiful magazine. It's kind of large format magazine so they talk about it being at the intersection of nature, science and esoterica. And they're using the, the elements as their themes. And so this one is based around fire. And so they use that to bring together this very, very disparate selection of stories. There's some amazing, I mean, the interactivity, the level of work that's been done. It. So there's this one, for example, where they've got an astrobiologer to talk about how she imagines Mars might have smelt 3.7 billion years ago when before it turned into the red planet when it was lush and there was all this sort of stuff and create a custom made perfume around it and spray it on the page I, I mean the hats off the, the effort that goes into this but more than that so the is that big, the smell that yeah. I'm smelling here I don't know so I think it's worn off a bit on it's my too, coffee I'm not sure it smells good. of Mars anymore <laughs> <laughs> just smells of printer's ink I don't know maybe that's what Mars smelled like mm. um, glue yeah no so but the other thing about it so so the production values are mad so there was also there was a belly band on this I mean you can't see it obviously but it's they have gone to town and their eco credentials are mad as well it's 100% recycled it's all done with vegetable based inks all of the kind of the printing material is recycled it's astonishing but they commission special art videos for a load of the features so there's this extra thing which I've I've seen lots of people try before and never really seen it work until now which is that you download a special app and then you hold it up to these beautiful photos and, and illustrations and then they come to life. And it's quite captivating. So this is only twice a year. But I mean, it's it feels like two years worth of work has gone into it. And I kind of respect that. So yes, no, I, I'm, I'm enjoying that and kind of gradually going through and, and using and thinking also about 
ways that video, interactive video, can kind of be used in our magazine if there's any kind of possibility for that. I'm learning a lot in Isn't this that, magazine nice review. Stuff. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, <laughs> thank you very much, Rob. Always a pleasure. And the latest edition of Delayed Gratification is out now. Photographer David de Vlashauer and writer Debbie Papin are regular Monaco contributors. The couple also just published a new book with Tashin called Remote Experiences, a stunning look at the travels they did to, indeed, remote places. With stunning photography and useful tips for the more adventurous, it's a worthy book to own. I spoke with both Debbie and David. Debbie and David, what a pleasure talking to you about the book Remote Experiences, which is a fantastic, beautiful book by Tashin. And of course, I know both of you collaborated, uh, well, still collaborate with Monaco, always amazing kind of stories from all sorts of countries around the world. But first of all, I start with Debbie. Debbie, what does the word remote mean to you? Because I know you're very connected to that word and to those spaces that are remote. What is the attraction uh, of it, first of all? Well, I guess we started going to remote places as a very natural way of traveling. We were always traveling for different stories, for different magazines and newspapers. And then by accident or just in a natural way of looking or doing research, we discovered these, like, areas or regions or countries that are lesser known that you almost have to convince your editor for weeks in a row to take the story because when you try to sell a story about Namibia 20 years ago nobody wanted a story about Namibia or 10 years ago about Greenland nobody wanted a story about Greenland so it was a bit like kind of a challenge a kind of interesting thing to go to these places to explore them and then to to go back to your editors and say hey i have this amazing story of a place that almost nobody goes to and it worked you know people were very very surprised were very happy with places that you know that were not very common not very mainstream so and then we just kind of had a taste for more and just tried to go to more of these unique and, and a bit off the map places Well, and David, it's the same as well for a photographer because you're photographing places that, you know, people are surprised. They have no idea what to expect. I mean, in the book, you go from Papua New Guinea to North Korea. So you like this challenge because it's something very fresh. Like, I don't know much about North Korea. And, and, and again, your pictures are very impressive. Yeah, yeah, to North Korea, I've been five times now. Huh? So uh, That's really a very surreal place to be and uh, definitely also a bit bespoke, of course, due to all the politics there. And it says in the book about North Korea that it is restricted, but it's remarkably easy. What, what, what do you mean with that? Do you think if someone goes there, it's not as, as difficult as someone might imagine? Yeah, no, exactly. Because especially even online, you see a lot of people posting YouTube stories of uh, we've managed to go to North Korea, we've managed to take photos. Uh, I've been going five times. I mean, to get your visa it takes 50 euro and five days and you get your visa. On arrival, you can buy a SIM card to a 3G access. There's a, a big misconception about things of traveling to North Korea. Of course, as I said, it's a really bespoke destination and the regime is awful. Let's make it clear. But it is much more easy to access than everybody thinks it is. And you're, even when you go, you don't get a stamp in your passport. 
And I saw it changing a lot. The first time when I went in 2009, I still had to hand in my iPhone on arrival and I got my phone back when I left. As I said, since Kim Jong-un, since uh, what, 2000, even in 2013 already, you could buy a, a SIM card with uh, 3G access, so you have internet. So I saw the country change as well, because eh? they're really focusing on tourism. Eh? So uh, it is much more easy. And it is also, for example, you're escorted by two guides. But even there, you have to know the guides. Most of the time, it are some female guides of 25 years old. They're all almost like students, and they work for KITC, Korea International Travel Company. It's not like the Stasi is escorting you, you know? I mean, I organize trips as well, and sometimes and I organize a trip for some CEOs in North Korea. Even on the last dot, we were splitting the groups, we were changing the itinerary completely. Everything was possible. But it's, I mean, everything you read about North Korea is true, but the nuance a lot of times is, the highlight is a bit different, if you know what I mean. So uh, you have to put everything a bit more in perspective. And Debbie, before you both travel, because as I said, those places, they are remote. So it's not so common perhaps to see tourists and What's the level of research you have to do to go to those places? And I wonder, what does it say about yours and David's personality? Do you just like to arrive and live the high life very adventurous? Or do you need to actually do strict research? For example, going to a place like North Korea, of course, which is very political at times, or Papua New Guinea. I would like to know that. Yes, I, I do think to those destinations you need to do some research and you do need to prepare a little bit more than if you would go to Greece or to Portugal. Not that it's necessary, but it will make it just a little bit more easier in terms of logistics, in terms of, let's say, having more time uh, to shoot or taking photos, organizing a good guide or a good driver in advance so you don't have problems when you arrive. Um, just like very practical stuff, I think that does help in these less accessible or a little bit more special places. In Africa, I mean, like the, the Botswana mobile safari, it's good to have it organized. Otherwise, it's, it make it more difficult. Or going to Upper Mustang. I mean, you do have to have a good car and a good driver and a good guide because this is very, very remote. I mean, just arriving there with a backpack, you might lose some days to get to the right spots, to the beautiful spots, to the right people, to the interesting people. So if you have some local contacts, which we often have, and then ask around and via this person goes to another person and you do it in advance, it does help. It does mean that I do like to travel a little bit more spontaneous and go with the flow, which is great. But those destinations sometimes are a bit, yeah, let's say, easier to explore if you organize some stuff in advance. And I presume it's the same for photography as well. For example, you know, I was looking at the beautiful pictures in Mongolia. I mean, very epic. But how do you approach that? Do you have to talk to the communities before you shoot them? Or is it really kind of... Sometimes it feels almost like photojournalism, even though I think your angle is perhaps a little bit more travel. Uh, how, how do you interact with people to take the pictures, actually, David? Because, again, we're talking about countries that are a bit more remote, right? Yeah, yeah but when we talk about the eagle hunters in Mongolia, I stayed with two families huh, for more than a week with no guides, no translator. So it was a bit challenging because we didn't even speak. Even communication was already... A bit frantic at the time, but yeah, you just try to blend in. Eh? Also, when I'm a photographer, I really, a lot of times, I like to take things slowly, 
don't want to jump in and start shooting like a paparazzi, like many people do. I really like to blend in and go quite soft and take it as it comes and just try to be patient and build up a relation with smoking a cigarette together or a drink together. It always opens doors. But yeah, I stayed with the Eagle Hunters in, in a bit rough conditions for a, a bit. And I know both of you have been doing this for a while, but it's so interesting that, I mean, now it is, I wouldn't say a trend, but I think people, when they go to travel, they are looking for those spaces because a lot of people are getting tired of, you know, of this kind of package holiday where everyone takes literally the same pictures. And it's been something that has been creating, but I think now it's reaching a level that I definitely see. And I think that's what the book portrays. And it's quite interesting that I like the part of the book where they say, well, you can actually go there. I mean, it might be a little bit difficult, but, you know, you can. I mean, those places, they are open if you really want to, in a way. So I guess that's the job of, that both of you are doing, right? Yes, I think for me, the interesting change let's say, and when we started to do this job 20 years ago to now, is that remote used to be something negative. Mm. If you read TripAdvisor reviews of a hotel, they said, oh, it's horrible, it's so remote, you know, it takes so much time to get there. Now, if you see the word remote, it's like, oh my God, this is beautiful remote little hotel. You know, you have to do some effort to get there and you're like with a few bunch of people and all the like-minded people and it's so calm and so nice. So it became a lot more sexy, a lot more like a marketing thing, the remoteness of a place, of a region, of a country. So this is the interesting evolution that I noticed between when we started and now. It did became something more trendy, if you can use that word, more in demand than 10, 20 years ago. You both should create a magazine called Remote Travel. I, feel, I think you do very well. I think there's a market for it. You've heard here first on the stack. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I have to talk to you guys then. Exactly, exactly. And I have to ask a question now to both of you, perhaps. What has been the most challenging place that you both traveled that is featured in the book? For me, definitely Papua New Guinea, because mm. uh, we were still a bit younger then. It was one of the first really remote places, more tropical remote places we traveled to, like later on followed Vanuatu and other more like tropical remote destinations. And it was still very untouristy. I mean, the logistics, the people, the accommodation, you really, really had to agree with the basic stuff. And then for David to shoot the really interesting tribes, uh, you know, the beautiful locations, uh, nature, I mean, you have to agree with uh, things that are not that great always. The food, you know, the people are not always, you know, the most helpful or friendliest. I mean, there's like, well, there's crime. You have to be careful. You have to watch your cameras or gear. I mean, yes, for me, Papa was a challenge. I was kind of happy to get back on the plane, to be honest, and stay in a normal hotel in New Zealand the day after when we left. So yes, for me, that was for sure my uh, number one challenging trip. <laughs> Probably it would be different now, a bit older, more experienced, and more putting things in perspective. But then, back then, I remember being happy to be back in the Western world or Western, like modern world, out of the jungle. <laughs> what about you, David? Uh, I think every destination had their own challenges. Eh? Upper Mustang, I mean, it's the annexed kingdom with Nepal, I mean, we're talking about 3,000, 4,000 meters altitude. So altitude sickness is a severe thing that you really have to take serious. I had water in my lungs already, so 
really know what we're talking about. So yeah, definitely Upper Mustang is quite a challenging place just due to the altitudes. But as I said, yeah, even the rally going to North Cape and you're shooting at minus 35 degrees Celsius, I mean, it has its Spitsbergen. Every destination had their challenges from being very cold to, yeah, like Debbie said, like Papua New Guinea, you have to be careful with crime. So yeah, every destination had their challenges. Thank you very much, David and Debbie. And Remote Experiences, published by Starshen, is out now. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Adam Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpnmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Dire Straits, So Far Away. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. So far away from me You're so far away from me So far I just can't